Our text this morning is Psalm 96, and we're looking at two facets that are represented in the psalm concerning worship. Number one, worship as obligation, and number two, worship as privilege. Firstly, then, worship as obligation. If you look at your bulletin outline, the first point is that God commands us to worship Him. There are certain things in life that God leaves to our own discretion where you're going to live. He doesn't much say anything about that. What vocation you might choose to support your family. Uh, what make of car you're going to buy and drive. But to worship God or not to worship God is not open to personal preference. Verse 9 of our text, worship, is in the command form here, worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. And then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Psalm 96, verses 9 and following. Now you read a text like this and you can see only God can effectively solicit joy and gladness from the inanimate objects of the heavens, the earth, the sea, the field. But when it comes to us, when it comes to people, he can and he does command people of the nations in general and his own people in particular, he commands us to worship him. There is no sense that this is optional. No, it is obligatory. And keep in mind what worship is. We have learned in a previous study that both the Hebrew word in this Old Testament usage and the Greek word of the New Testament usage means the same thing. The word worship means to bow down before and pay homage. To be humble and self-effacing. The worship of God, you see, presupposes that we know our place before God and do not overstep our authority by failure to credit God with all that he is due as a person and is due his name. We learned in an earlier study that we are not to view God as many, a plurality of gods, but as one, nor do we image or invent him as we want him to be, which is idolatry. And by the way, idols are more than, than um, pieces of copper or gold or silver, statues or anything of that nature. Idols, Ezekiel talks about idols of the heart. Things that we put above God in terms of uh, our emphasis and our dedication and our energies and all of those things. That can also be idolatry. So now, today, we learn that God has something to say about the necessity of worship and just how we're to conduct ourselves in worship. And because our hearts are prone to idolatry, it is essential for God to lay down the checks and balances to keep us in compliance with His will. In a later study, we're going to look at the elements of worship, but for now, I just want you to see that God commands us to gather for the purpose of worshiping Him. Secondly, 
The nations need to see and hear the praise of God's worshiping people. Verse 1 and following, sing to the Lord. Well, if you're going to sing, somebody's going to be listening, right? Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. First three verses. Now when we read something like that, we cannot escape. The missionary emphasis, if I could say it that way, the missionary emphasis of these words. What is it about the nations that the psalmist would say to us, declare God's glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples? Nations are, that's what they are. They're made up of people. And so he says it that way. Well, what is it about the nations that they need this declared to them? Look at verse 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols. Okay. What is it about idols that demonstrate the great need of the nations? The psalmist answers in Psalm 135, verse 15 and following. He says, The idols of the nation are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Psalm 135, verse 15 and following. Here the psalmist spells out the impotency of the idols of the nation. You see, the idols of the nation have all the appearances of life. Mouths, eyes, ears, supposedly possessing all the abilities to see, hear, and do on behalf of those who worship them. But these features, mouths, eyes, ears, are just so much castings in silver and gold. They're inanimate. They're not alive or lively at all. It'd be like walking into the lobby of McLaren Hospital up here seeking medical help for a particular physical ailment and approaching one of the portraits of the doctors on staff, which they have hanging on the wall there, and expecting that portrait to help you. The portrait may in fact be a rather accurate rendition of the physician that you need to see, but in the end, it's just a picture. It's just a facsimile with no power to diagnose, or to prescribe, or to heal at all. The idols of the nations are like that. Viewed as the god or gods necessary to help people in their needs, but lacking any real and living divine power to perform. They are lifeless. They are powerless. Not in the sense that they were alive once and then died. No, the idol gods have been lifeless and powerless from the beginning. What was their beginning? The psalmist says those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Psalm 135 verse 18. So you see the idol gods didn't make anything. 
They are not creators. They are themselves creations. They are creations of those who now bound down to them in worship as, is ra as irrational as that is. They make their own God and then they bow down to it as though that was God. In contrast, the God of the Bible deserves to have his glory declared abroad, verse 3, because of his marvelous, notice now, his marvelous deeds among the peoples. Contrary to the idol gods of the nations, the God of the Bible has done and is doing some things among the nations. They have a blind eye to it, but we see it because of God's grace. They're ignorant, being blinded by the evil one, but we have come to know God, and therein lies one of the reasons the missionary enterprise falls squarely on our shoulders. It's our task to tell the nations about the living God. All right, what are we supposed to tell them? What's our informational praise of God? Well, number one, we're to tell the nations that the God of the Bible is the creator. In particular, their creator. Look at verse 3. It mentions generally his marvelous deeds among the nations. But look at verse 5, the latter part. The Lord made the heavens. Contrast that to the idol gods of the nations, which can only sit there and look stupid. God has done things. God has been and continues to be active in the world in which we live. Jeremiah asks the question, Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, O Lord, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. Jeremiah 14. Verse 22. Now I know a scientist would have an explanation about evaporation and distillation and all of those things, which is a scientific explanation of the process. But what Jeremiah is doing, he's going back to basics. He's saying there's someone behind the processes, and it's our goal. Zechariah, another prophet, chimes in. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime, he says. It is the Lord who makes the storm clouds. He gives showers of rain to men and plants of the field to everyone. The idols speak deceit. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. First thing we need to tell people is that God is their creator. That's a sobering thing in our day. Things didn't just happen. They didn't just evolve. God creates. Do you know that declaring God as creator is a repeated theme of Christian testimony? In the town of Lystra, Paul healed a man who had been lame from birth. We read, when the crowd saw that Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because 
he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. To who? To Barnabas and Paul. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men! Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to the truth to flee from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food. He fills your heart with joy. And we read, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Acts 14, verse 11 and following. So you see, in an idolatrous culture that Paul and Barnabas ministered, they could have taken the glory for themselves for this healing. But they refused to do that because they knew that it was God who did the healing, not them. And they wanted these Lyconian people to learn Forsake your idols and worship the living God. Joel writes, Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten, have eaten my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be ashamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be ashamed. Joel chapter 2, verse 23 and following. Paul confirmed to the Athenians, the Athenian idolaters, I might say, on Mars Hill. They, were, they said, they heard him preaching in the square down in Athens. And they said, we, we have this place. It's called Mars Hill. The Areopagus is the Greek word for it. Uh, where we have all the philosophers come. And, and they debate certain things. And we'd like you to, you, you seem to be teaching some strange things to us. We would like you to come to the Areopagus and uh, be questioned and answer type of thing. Would you be one? And he did it. He went. And here's what he said on Mars Hill. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, 
we are his offspring. Acts 17, verses 24 and following. What I'm saying here is that our informational praise of God and worship magnifies him as creator. That's something the nations, our nation, our country, needs to hear. God is creator. What else can we tell them in worship? Well, number four, verse four, the God of the Bible is to be feared. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. We are not talking here about a know-nothing, do-nothing, impotent artifact of man's invention and craftsmanship. No, God is to be feared because he can do something about rebels. He can and he does deal with idolaters. Yes, Paul told the Athenian idolaters about God as creator. We just saw that. But he went on to say this. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, he made us, you see, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, now he commands old people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day in which he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising that man from the dead. Acts 17 29 through 31, and he is referencing Jesus, of course, the one raised from the dead. This is why verse 9 of our own text says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Verse 10, he will judge the peoples with equity. Let me ask this. What can a... um, What can a lifeless idol god, crafted by men, what can that god do to you if you choose to disobey? Ever think of that? Jeremiah answers in chapter 10, verse 5. Here's what he says. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Jeremiah 10, verse 5. Wow, what a commentary on the idol gods of our hearts or of the nations. Now, if the idols cannot do harm to their worshipers, Is there any reason to be afraid of them? Not really. And I would say that that is precisely the reason people invent God into the idol they want him to be. Under the rubric of, well, God is love. For many, that definition has eliminated for them any concept of a negative repercussion For sin, and a number of theologians in our day have declared now that there is no eternal judgment or hell. 
But the Bible says, and in fact our text says, that informed worshipers will tremble before God because among other things, he will judge the peoples with equity. Verse 13 states again, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples, notice the phrase, in his truth. In our day, in our sophisticated culture, people display their idolatry in talking about divinity as my God. Have you ever people talk about that? My God. I'm not talking about when they're swearing. I'm talking about when they say something like, my God would never send anyone to hell. They're, they're defining God, their definition of God. My God wouldn't do that. And it's part of the subset that they have been taught by pagan teachers, namely that truth is what you make it. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Or to say it another way, they would say, truth that remains constant throughout all of history and under every circumstance of life is fiction. It doesn't exist. And so the subset states, I have my truth, you have your truth, to each his own. So in the present discussion, they make statements like, well, my God would never send anyone to hell. Or, my God would never allow a child to be born with a physical or mental impairment. Or, my God loves everybody equally. Where are they getting this? They are inventing that. They're not getting it from the Bible. They're not getting it from the self-disclosure of God that he has given us in the scriptures. But let's, let's just for the moment assume that truth is relative, not absolute. That each of us can and do make decisions based upon how we see life. Let's assume that for the moment. Now notice what our text says about the judgment of God at His coming. It says there, He comes to judge the earth. Okay, so we ask what's going to be the criteria for the judgment. He goes on. He will judge the earth in righteousness and the peoples, notice the phrase, in His truth. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You mean God is going to use his criteria of truth and that criteria alone in meeting out justice to the people? He isn't going to let the people decide my truth, your truth, to each his own. This, among other things, takes the wind out of the inflated sails of presumptuous and arrogant people. God is not beholding to you. You are beholding to him. And if your truth, as you say, does not allow you to admit that the soul that sins will die, Ezekiel 18, verse 20, be it known today that God doesn't much care about what you think is true. 
He does not judge men on such false views of truth. His criteria for dealing with people is His truth, which He has graciously recorded and preserved for you in the Bible. And you're responsible for its content. God has not hidden any essential thing from you. You can read and believe, or you can decline and mock But in the end, God's word will prevail, not yours, not mine. God, through Isaiah, says this, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. There's nobody you know that could make a statement like that. Well, if I said it, it's coming true. If I said it, I'm going to do it. But God says it. And he does it. And so our worship is to evidence a healthy fear of God for who and what he is. He's the creator of all people. And he comes in judgment using his truth as the criteria for the decisions he makes. We are obligated thus to worship God. This is the God of the Bible. say, well, I don't much like the God of the Bible. It doesn't change things. At all. This is who he is. It's your task to get in sync with him. He isn't coming over on your side. He's God. He's creator. We must conform to him. Now, that's our obligation of worship, and you can see why. There's there's no being in the universe like the God of the Bible. Men think they're their own little gods, but that's all. That's the part that's fiction. Now, secondly, we are privileged to worship God. I want you to think about this. We are privileged to worship God. To worship God as creator. Think of where you live and how it is that you have come to the recognition and worship of the God of the Bible. David reflected on this in his day in Psalm 139, verse 13 and following. He was a king of Israel, mighty king. But he was also a prophet, a writer of scripture. A lot of the Psalms are written by David. Some of the histories are written by David. But the man was a thinker. Here's, 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 here's some of his thoughts. He's talking to God. He says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Oh. I praise you because I am am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made In the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before any one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts 
O God. How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 18. What is David doing here? Well, David is seeing what Moses saw way back there in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. What did Moses see? He saw this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, verse 27. No monkey business here. No Darwinian natural selection or evolution. No spontaneous life from non-life. David will have none of that nonsense. Not because he's wiser than the mad scientists of our day, and it is irrational, by the way, to believe that life has issued from non-life. It's also blasphemous because the creation of God is belittled and mocked and denied by blind men who claim to see. They're like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. His rebuke is apropos. He replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots, leave them. He's saying to his disciples, don't even mess with the Pharisees, just, just leave them alone. And then he goes on this, explain why. They, he says, are blind guides. Put those two words together and see if that drives in your thinking. A blind guide. Guide. He goes on. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Matthew 15, verse 13 and 14. Think about that. Think for a moment about the tour guides in Arizona whose job it is to guide people through the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is 277 miles long. That's a three-hour drive to drive from one end of the canyon to the other end. That's astonishing when you think about it. It's up to 18 miles wide. And it attains a depth of over a mile in one location, 6,000 feet down. Except for lookout sites established by the national parks, there are no barriers restricting the vast precipices dropping off into the Colorado River Gorge below. Now, would you feel confident, would you feel safe hiring a blind tour guide to walk you through Grand Canyon National Park. You say, well, that would be absurd, Pastor. No one would do such a thing unless they had a death wish and never expected to make it out of the canyon alive. But brethren, every day, hour by hour, day in and day out, the vast majority of the nations put their confidence for spiritual matters and more on the blind inventions Isaiah writes, all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing. He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together. Let them all take their stand. 
They will be brought down to terror and infamy. Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 11. Blind. Isaiah says they're blind. You see, a craftsman is not the creator. His idol works are blind, and so is he. How privileged we are to know God as David knew him as the creator. And that's a work of grace that God has done in our hearts. A great privilege to know God as creator. Secondly, we are privileged to worship the creator as savior. As savior. The need of a savior presupposes that we're lost. Right? We're incapable of rectifying our predicament and improving our state. Back to the Grand Canyon for a moment. Suppose you had a great guide, a person who was well-versed on all the passable trails leading from the heights to the gorge below. He or she knew the canyon like the back of his or her hand. He had a great guide. Okay. And so you were very, very confident. But somewhere on the descent, you, you wandered off on a rabbit trail of your own interests. And when nightfall came, you found yourself in a remote, uh, barren, and forbidding crevice, still thousands of feet from the canyon floor. You called out, help, help. All you heard was your own voice echoing off the canyon wall. Suddenly, a sickening feeling came over you with the reality began to sink in. I'm lost. And there's no way, night or day, that I can make it out of this gorge alive. Brethren, it's not enough. It is not enough to recognize God as creator. You have to know him as savior. As the one who knows all of the nooks and crannies that our sin has taken us to. And a savior who is willing and able to sacrifice his own life to find you and rescue you. Our text puts it this way, verses 1 through 3. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord and praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nation, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. Glory has the idea of light. See, Salvation for the spiritually blind. The psalmist words it this way in another psalm. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than with their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 4, verses 6 through 8. Again, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Psalm 23, verse 4. Or again, the Savior himself speaks, saying to the people of his day, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, verse 12. It's a privilege. It is a privilege to know the Creator as Savior. We ought to be praising him for his salvation. And then lastly in this text, it is a privilege to worship the Savior. And this is going to shock some people. To worship the Savior as judge. Notice how often the psalmist references God as judge. In verse 4, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Verse 10, He will judge the peoples with equity. Verse 13, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. So fear is mentioned once. Tremble before him is mentioned once. God is judge is mentioned three times. Now you can't separate this. You can't say, well, no wait. Is this a different God than the one that's the Savior? No. Is this a different God other than the one who's the creator? No. It's the same person. Creator. Savior. astounding but what is even more astounding is how the psalmist addresses this subject of judgment look at it verse one sing to the lord whoa sing to the lord sing to the lord a new song sing to the lord all the earth verse two sing to the lord and praise his name verse seven ascribe to the lord glory and strength verse 11 let the heavens rejoice let the earth be glad verse 12 let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. The trees of the forest will sing for joy. What's this? Singing, praising, glad, jubilant, joy. These are all the sounds of celebration, not the fearful cries of terror. How can that be if you're going to talk about the Savior being the judge? Well, it's because the judge is the savior of his people engaged in this worship. Jesus put it this way. Just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son, he's talking about himself, even so the son gives life to whom he pleases to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one. Listen to this. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. Why? He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming, 
and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. John 5, 21 through 27. The reason... There's joy and celebration in Psalm 96 in contemplating the subject of God as judge is because it's the Savior who's the judge. No need to dread judgment if the judge is your Savior. There's no condemnation to those whose sins have been laid on Jesus who bore our condemnation for us we who believe have crossed over from death to life. And therein is our great joy. Therein is our great glad gladness. And reason enough to be jubilant in song as we're reading in this psalm. As we worship God. What a privilege to know that the Savior is the judge. David understood this. One day he sinned terribly before God by numbering the people. So well, what was so terrible about that? He was, this was in wartime, you understand. This is where nations counted their might by the number of soldiers they had, the number of armaments they had. And so David did that. He, he numbered his soldiers. You want to know how many fighting men do I have? You say, well, what was wrong with that? Well, he was missing the point that all of the victories, and he was a warring king, that all of his victories had been not because of the might of his massive army. He didn't have a massive army. His victories were because of God and his grace to him. And so God was going to judge him. And he gave him three choices. Listen to David's decision. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. First Chronicles 21, verse 13. How can, how can he choose that? What kind of choice is that? God is angry with him for being presumptuous, for numbering his fighting men and thinking that's what's going to deliver him in the next battle. His thinking is this. Even when God is angry with me, even when I deserve to be chastised by him, I'd rather come under the hands of the Lord because his mercy is very great. Brethren, to have the Savior as a judge is merciful. It's gracious. The day is coming, sad to say, when all the nations will stand before Christ. Paul says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our life 
here on earth. Well, what if the judge is the Savior? What if he's your Savior? John, in, or in, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says not only is he, he the judge, but he is the advocate. You know what an advocate is. He's the lawyer. Now think about this. I got to stand before the judge. And the judge is the Savior. And I have an advocate, a lawyer, that's going to plead my case. And Paul says, he's the Savior. Talk about win-win. Christ pleads our case. And then he adjudicates our case on the merit of his own blood and sacrifice. Mm -hmm. That sinner, yeah, he's a sinner. Yes, she's a sinner. But my blood has covered and paid for their sin. Isn't that something to praise the Lord about? Don't you see that as a privilege? Who can say that but God's people? Brethren, let us worship the Lord and let us see it as obligation, number one, and number two, as a great, great privilege because not many people see God in that light. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray for anyone here that is outside of your grace. They can become part of your grace, recipients of your mercy, if today they will but turn away from their sin and cry out to you in faith to save them. We're thank you, thankful that you are more than creator. Yes, you made us. And so in that, we have an obligation right there. Creatures need to be subject to creator. But on top of that, you're the savior of all those who will repent of their sin and cry unto Christ for forgiveness. And then on top of that, is if that were not good enough and best of all, you're the judge for eternal things. You said it plainly, fear not man who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Fear rather God who can cast both body and soul into hell. We fear thee, but we love thee. Our fear is reverent all because of who and what you are. And we marvel at the fact that you've reached down from heaven in the person of your son to pay the costly price of our sin. In the next hour, Lord, we plan to celebrate that around your table. But we thank you right now for bringing us out of our idolatry to worship the true and living God. May you do that for any searching soul here today. Find them, Lord. Draw them by your grace. Grant them the faith they don't have and the repentance they don't want to yield with regard to their sin. Bring them, draw them to yourself. For your honor and glory and for their own good, we pray these things.